Tim Beard is on vacation. But I got to tell him, he might want to take a couple extra weeks here. Uh, these kids. <laughs> and, and, a, and a word to the older ones who are on the older praise gang, you better start rehearsing a little bit more. It's, uh, it's great. Wasn't it good just to see these young people up here raising their hands and worshiping? That's his... Um, That's wonderful. Absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. And we thank you that you you are stronger, you are greater. We thank you that all power is in your hand. We thank you, O God, that that's not just a cute throwaway line. That is reality. And Lord, I just pray in the name of your son, a person that's here today that's feeling battered and beaten and intimidated and overwhelmed. May they understand, may we understand that God is never out of control, that he is never surprised, that he is the ancient of days, that he is a portrait and picture of stability and power and resources. And so God, give our souls rest and comfort today. Now, Lord, speak to us. Take us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I am so grateful to God for the team of people that God has raised up for me to serve with. Our staff are just absolutely amazing. And uh, Kevin Cross is just a blessing to this church. And I just praise God for Kevin and for how God uses him. You know, these things find Kevin. Uh, It's not like he goes out and sends out, uh, you know, his bio and this kind of thing to TV stations. It just finds our church. In fact, the story behind this is Jeff Wiggins really uh, indirectly is responsible for this TV coverage. And uh, the Wall Street Journal heard about the, the group that he was working with. And one thing led to another. And CBS News found out about that. And we were just minding our own business and trying to be faithful to the Lord. And by the way, let me share this with you. You never have to orchestrate your future. You got to be careful of orchestrating your life. Uh, Great things tend to happen to those who are on their way to being faithful. And, uh, and the Lord has done that. And so pray that we will be faithful with that and that God will continue to work and bless, and bless our church. All right, if you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. I'm learning to say this now. If you don't have a Bible, you have an iPad or a tablet or a phone or that kind of thing. You guys are faking me out here. I'm thinking you're following me and you're playing, what is that, Burbs game? (laughs) Right? And you just say amen every once in a while. And I know that you're playing the game because at an inappropriate time you'll go, yes. You know, but no, I didn't say anything worth that. So, (laughs) yeah, I I got you, I got you, this kind of thing. But in Genesis chapter, uh, I want you to meet me in Genesis chapter 28, going to cover chapters 28, 29, 30, and 31 today. This is about uh, Jacob being taken to the woodshed. If you're visiting with us, I want to connect the dots. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Genesis, entitled this series, Our Family Tree. And again, the anchor statement is this. The reason why we're studying the book of Genesis, obviously, it's the book of beginnings, but not just the beginning of human history, it's the the book of beginnings in terms of how God works in human history and all that is uh, uh, foundational to our relationship with God finds its roots in the book of, of Genesis. Last week, we talked about Jacob and uh, the great deceiver. And I began the message by making this statement, and I want to connect the dots today. And that is that the tendencies in one generation become the traits in the next. I said a little bit about generational sin, and I, I warned us a little bit about, you know, don't get spooky or mystical with generational sin. I, about half the stuff I hear and, and read about that, I don't agree with it because it almost, uh, it almost comes across as if we are helpless victims to what people have done in the past. That's not necessarily true, but don't go too far from that. It becomes perhaps a trait in our generation that we have to watch. In other words, consequences for sin are far-reaching, and they're, they're a lot broader than we think. And the point that I was trying to make last week is that no one sins privately. There's no such thing as personal private sin. Our sins affect people. It affects stuff, and it causes a mess. 
And we find Jacob living out this mess that goes all the way back to his grandfather, Abraham, who had a problem with telling the truth. It's intensified with his daddy, Isaac, who throws his wife under the bus when they go down to the Philistines. And now, you know, it is taken to a hellacious art form in Jacob's life. Now that he, uh, you know, he he just blatantly, uh, you know, steals the birthright, steals the blessing, and there's no sense of remorse, no sense of conviction about him. It is deeply rooted. Found out last week, too, that his mother was incredibly complicit in all of this, that Rachel is just as deceptive as her little boy. And we're going to see today how that goes back in her family as well. We ended the story last week with uh, Esau is uh, ticked off. He's had it with his brother. And uh, he says in so many words, before God, I'm going to kill you. So help me, I'm going to kill you. I've had enough of you. Well, Rachel, realizing that her baby boy's neck is on the line, says, you better go into hiding and lay low with, your, with my brother Laban. And so we find Jacob going to Laban to lay low. The title of this message, uh, actually, it's part one. Now, I'm going to give you part two next week. The title of this message is What Goes Around Comes Around. What Goes Around Comes Around. And this is part one. God puts, puts Jacob with Laban, and uh, Jacob is in a woodshed. And then next week, we see that God comes to Jacob personally to finally root out the last vestiges of deceit and deception in this man's life. Elie Weissel, who uh, is uh, the Nobel Prize laureate and Holocaust survivor, made this observation that I think frames a lot of what we're going through right now and going to talk about today. It also gives us incredible hope when you look at Jacob's life. And I hope it gives us hope because God did not give up on Jacob despite his diabolical, manipulative, clandestine, irresponsible deception. Unbelievable. Elie Weissel says this, nobody is stronger, nobody is weaker than someone who came back. There is nothing you can do to such a person because whatever you could do is less than what has already been done to him. We have already paid the price. And that's what Jacob is going to be. By the time we get done today and next week, you're going to see a different Jacob. God doing something in him that permanently marks his life, that makes him scared spitless to lie and to deceive again. Galatians chapter six, seven, chapter six, verse seven, and Hebrews chapter 12, verse six should be in the back of your minds as we proceed with this message. The apostle Paul makes this statement, and I want us all to hear this statement, because unfortunately, we, we, we sometimes treat the Bible as if it's kind of like general statements that don't really apply to me. But listen to this word. The apostle Paul says, be not deceived, God is not mocked or made fun of. Whatsoever person souls, that shall they also reap. Be not deceived. In other words, don't think that you're going to get a pass. God is not mocked. Don't make fun of him. Take him seriously. Whatsoever man souls, that shall he also reap. And then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And if you're not getting a spanking, if you're not being pruned, and if you're not occasionally going to the woodshed, then chances are you don't really belong to Jesus. For who the Lord loves... He spanks. He corrects. And that's a part of a, quote, gospel and a part of the Christian life that we need to underscore. Discipline is core to Christianity. There can be no growth and development in the Christian life unless there is some degree of discipline. And we see this 
in Jacob's life. And I want to say this too, and please forgive me for taking a while before I get into this story, because these are issues that are weighty things. Uh, There are consequences to sin. Sure, God is compassionate. I was talking to Karen about this the other day. You know, I am so glad that God has been merciful to me. Uh, there are things that I've, been done, that, that I've done wrong, and God has not given me the full bore consequences. He's been merciful. But to be sure, there are consequences to sin. We will be forgiven if we repent. But forgiveness doesn't mean that we don't pay the consequences. And I think that there is a perverted grace that's being preached today that somehow means that, you know, we come across as if you can do whatever you want to do. You can say whatever you want to say. You can treat people any way you want to treat them. And all you have to do is just 1 John 1, 9, confess your sin. All of a sudden, you know, you're cleansed, you're forgiven, and you don't have to pay that price. No, 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 no. We are cleansed and we are forgiven. But the consequences are a wonderful gift from God to help us to understand that we should not do that again. That's a part of his grace. It's just like the guy that cheats on his wife and she forgives him but doesn't trust him. Well, she shouldn't trust him. He's got to live with the consequences of what he's done. It's like your child lies to you and been lying to you for a long time. I said, Dad, will you forgive me? Yes, I'm going to forgive you, but here are a few things that we need to do in order for you to overcome that. That's the consequences. Well, now we find Jacob lying low at his uncle Laban's house, having ripped off his brother, thinking that, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm running from this circumstance. <laughs> but God has him where he wants him. You know, uh, We can run from our circumstances, but how many of us know that we can't hide from God? You can get out of a jam. You can get out of a situation. You can run from something. And I see people do this all the time. Rather than face their sin, they get called to something else. I served on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ for many years. And unfortunately, there were some situations in which staff members were dealing with some issues. And before Somebody can blow the whistle or they can deal with the situation. All of a sudden, God's called them to minister elsewhere. Thinking that out of the environment means that I'm away from the problem. No, out of the environment may mean that the problem is exacerbated. You can run from your situation, but you can't run from God. So Jacob thinks, okay, this is cool. I'll lay low down here with Laban. I'll chill. You know, he's my mother's brother. He's my favorite uncle, and he's going to take care of me. Well, he's there, and God says, no, you're here for one reason. I got another reason for you being here. And by the time I get done with you over the next 20 years of you being down here, there's going to be some stuff that's carved out of your life, but you're not going to like it. And by the way, I just, just, just so that we keep a sense of movement going here, this saga unfolds with these five words. These five words help us to give a little bit of movement to this saga. One is that he is prepared. Secondly, he is smitten. Thirdly, he is cheated. Fourthly, he is pursued. And number five, he is protected. So as you go through these four chapters, you see that uh, he's prepared, he is smitten, he is cheated, he is pursued, but he is protected. All of this having to do with what God wants to do in his heart and life. The very first thing happens in chapter 28, verses 10 through 17. There is this amazing encounter that God himself has with with Jacob. Verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder sent up on the earth, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of the Lord were descending, ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." 
Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, remember that line, and will keep you, remember that line, wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, Bethel, and this is the gate of heaven. Often before we enter into a season of discipline and or pruning, God will prepare us. And you've got to read this not in an isolated sense. When you read this, you've got to read the rest of the chapters because God meets with him dramatically. And the whole purpose of him meeting with, with Jacob right now and revealing himself to him was to prepare him for what he was going to go through. Let me just let's walk through this a little bit. There are four things, and I'm not going to reread it, that this paragraph tells us in this encounter. Number one, he has a vision of heaven. In the vision of heaven, Jacob's ladder, the angels going back and forth, said, what in the world does that mean? Well, what it means is this. Number one, God himself is at work in all of human history. He was telling him that. When you see the angels go ascending and descending, what God was saying to him is, look, I'm at work in all of human history. All of it. Every last bit of it. Nothing happens in human history apart from my involvement. Somebody needs to hear that today. The second thing is that nothing happens in your life personally. That's what he was saying by, by giving this vision, the angels going up and down. Nothing happens in your life personally or in life in general that's beyond God's ability to use. And even those of us who have screwed up, we have messed up, we have stolen, quote, the birthright and the blessing, we've done unimaginable things, I want to let you know that God is in the business of using even the awful things that we have done for his glory. And he's intervening in our lives. And he will use all of that for his honor and glory. There's also uh, uh, an affirmation of his promise, the covenant. Isn't it interesting, don't have, to do the, uh, don't, don't have time to do this, but every single time at a time of crisis or just before God was going to do something in the lives of the patriarchs, what does he do? He reminds them of the covenant that he made with Abraham. He reminds them that they are part of, of, of a long chain of events that God wants to use them to implement. And he says, my covenant has not changed. My promise has not changed. And I want to reaffirm this to you. Yeah, yeah, you messed up, buddy. Yeah, you, you, you are one liar, my friend. Yeah, you're one deceptive dude. But I gave this covenant, and the covenant doesn't change. And you have a part in this. Number three, he promises in verse 15 his presence. He says, I'm going to be with you. You need to remember this. You need to remember this. He was launching him into a 20-year hell ride. Excuse the expression, but I, I mean that intentionally. He was launching him to, into one 20-year mess that he was going to have to go through. But you need to understand that even in the middle of your mess and what's going to happen to you, I am with you. Parenthetically, some of us need to hear that this morning. The question is, when you don't feel his presence, don't say, where is God? I know we're tempted to say that. Where is he? He's with you. I don't feel, well, he's with you. I don't like, he's with you. Why did they, he's with you. He says that to him. Number four, he gives him an unforgettable encounter. Surely the Lord is in this place. It's as if God's saying, that's, that's what I want you to remember. I'm preparing you. God is real and present with Jacob. What Jacob would go through would not change anything God planned to do through him. That's what he's saying. Jacob's focus had to be on God and not on what he's about to go through. And Jacob's relationship with God would be deeper, fuller, and richer. And what you're going through right now is God has you on uh, with his pruning knife, carving things out, maybe taking you to the woodshed, as I have been on many occasions, and you don't like it, you wish it could change, you want to change your theology, 
you got to understand that when you get through this, God will give you a richer, a richer, deeper, fuller experience. In 1976, Karen and I moved to Dallas, Texas. Two of the most devastating hard years that I've ever had in my life. Before I went to Dallas, we were living in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And I had this habit of going to a little park there uh, that had this kind of big pond there, and I would go there and pray. I remember wrestling with the decision to leave Philadelphia, the Philadelphia area, to go to Dallas, Texas and help plant this church. And I just had this strange sense in my heart that God wanted me to do this. And I will never forget this. Um, God doesn't speak to me audibly. But this was one of those powerful moments. I was actually just sitting here throwing rocks in the water. Throwing rocks in the water. And I threw one in, and the rock sank, obviously, and the ripples went across the pond. And it was as if God said to me, Crawford, don't ever worry about the breadth of your life. You worry about the depth of your walk with me. If you take care of the depth of your walk with me, I will take care of the breadth. I can't tell you how many times over that two-year period, the death of our daughter, a number of other things that happened during that whole time, that God brought me back to that point. What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say to you is this. The problem that we have in our culture today is that we have short memories. And this is one of, this is one of the reasons. It was during this time that I got very serious about journaling. You need to write down those incredible God moments in your life because there are going to be seasons in which you will need them. And this was one of those moments. It was as if God says, okay, Jacob, write this in your journal. Write this in your journal. So he is prepared, but secondly, he's smitten. He leaves from that deal and he goes on about his business and he comes to this well there over in chapter 29. And while Jacob is at the well, he encounters uh, uh, some of Laban's workers and shepherds and this kind of thing, and he's talking with them. Then all of a sudden, he sees this woman, Rachel, who was a shepherdess, and he is smitten by her. In fact, he's captured by Rachel. Verse 9 of chapter 29 says, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. By the way, wells there were not what we talk about right now. Wells were elaborate places. They were not just holes in the ground with, you know, you lower the rope down. They were elaborate things. You walk down the steps. When we were in Israel, we visited some wells, and they were just elaborate, amazing things. And so, they were at this well, and, and uh, uh, she was kind of watering the flock there. And Jacob sees her. It's his cousin. In verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept. They were kissing cousins. Boom, boom. <laughs> Sorry. I just... That, take that out of the tape. That's not... Yeah. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebecca's son. And she ran and told her father, I think this kiss, you know, obviously, culturally speaking, um, you, you, you kiss relatives as a form of greeting. But when he kissed her and wept, I wonder if there's a little bit more to it than that. She was a beautiful woman. And by the way, these patriarchs had good taste, didn't they? Sarah was beautiful. Rebecca was beautiful, and Rachel was beautiful. Yeah, well, never mind. That's another line there that I could mess with. And uh, so he, he's captured by her, but he's also committed to her. He falls head over heels. And down in verse 15, you know, he's talking to Laban. And he says, Laban, Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? In other words, you know, ain't no free ride here. I know we're, we're related. And, uh, you know, but, but, you know, you, I want to give you something. Huh. Tell me, 
What should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. This sucker is starting to set this up. We'll come back to this dude in a second. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. It's amazing what you'll put up with when you're in love, isn't it? Seven years. I mean, she must have been a knockout. Seven years. I don't know too many dudes would want to wait seven years. But she was something, and it captured his heart. Uh, There's a larger point that I want to underscore here, though. I think in large part, God used Jacob's love for Rachel to keep him still long enough to discipline and prune him. God had a hook. And the hook was Rachel. Rachel was God's instrument to keep him there long enough so that God could begin to work in him. You know, God has you tied to your circumstances, maybe because there's something he wants to do in your life. And if you are free, you might run from the lesson. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? I can't do what I want to do because of my responsibility with my kids. I can't get the job that I want to get because of this deal here. Why do we look at that negatively? Maybe God has you where he has you in that circumstance that you don't like because he wants to do something in you and through you. At this stage in my life, I have learned that freedom can be bondage. I look back over my life in those moments in which I felt cramped and constrained and and felt like I couldn't move and that, that God wasn't working. Well, he was working. And if he had let me go when I wanted to go, he would have never taught me what I needed to know. You follow me? So God uses Rachel to keep him there. Well, it gets strange here. He's prepared, smitten, but number three, he's cheated. He's cheated. Laban was a mess all along. So what happens is that he obviously is in deeply in love with, with Rachel, and he's cheated two ways by Laban. Number one is a wrong woman. And then, secondly, the doctored livestock. Let me comment on the wrong woman. So, in verses uh, 25 through 30, you know, they've had this incredible uh, uh, marriage feast and celebration. It's a wedding feast, and the spirits were high. But sometime during the night, sometime during the night, Laban switched the women. He switched the women. I mean, this is, I don't mean to be demented here today, but this is like almost hilarious. Verse 25 says, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? I don't want to get too much into details here, but you say, well, how in the world could he go to bed with Leah and not know it? Well, perhaps he was drunk. He was high. And he fell asleep. He wakes up in the morning and looks what's sleeping next to him and goes, whoa! Honey, you need some makeup. Something's wrong. <laughs> you know, I'm just reading the passage here. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine going, ho? One scholar says this is a masterpiece of shameless treachery. God gives Jacob a taste of his own medicine, doesn't he? You stole the birthright, you stole the blessing. And he uses this line, why have you deceived me? 
I, I, I can't prove this from the text, but I almost guarantee you when those words were coming out of his mouth, you know the two words that came to his mind? Birthright and blessing. Birthright and blessing. The mirror was held up to him. Birthright and blessing. Why did you, dece- why did you deceive your brother? Why did you, de- why did you deceive your brother? What goes around comes around. It reminds me of what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. You know, when Nathan confronts David, when Nathan confronts him, you know, the sin that David had with Bathsheba, and by the time he's confronted with Nathan, some scholars believe it's up to two years. David thought perhaps he'd gotten over it, he kept the lid on top of it, you know, kind of like moved Bathsheba in and everything's cool and Uriah's dead and, you know, wasn't the nicest thing they ever done in my life, but hey, let's get on with life. We kind of like we all screw up, right? Nathan comes to him and he says to him, you know, you know, you know, David, and he knew how to get him because David was a man of justice and he knew what it meant to be wrongly treated. So Nathan paints this picture, this man that has this, this poor man that has this little lamb, and it's like, a, it's like the family pet. He doesn't have anything else but this little lamb, and his rich neighbor that has all these flocks and herds, but he's selfish. He didn't want to give, give this visiting guest uh, any of his flocks and herds to cook the meal, so he rips off this poor man. And the text, you can just feel it. David is incensed. He says, who is he? He deserves to die. Remember what Nathan said? You're the man, David. You use power to take that woman and kill her husband. You're the man. When the mirror was put up in front of David, he said six words, I have sinned against the Lord. And I think this is what happens here. But God's not through yet. He's cheated the wrong woman, but number two, he's cheated with the doctored livestock. There's a long section over here in chapter 30, verses uh, 29 through 43. Actually, in verses uh, 25 and 26, uh, Jacob says, it's time for me to leave. Well, God said, no, no, not yet, not yet. It's not time for you to go yet. I got, I got to deepen something here. And so he says to Laban, he wants to go. Well, Laban, Laban doesn't want him to leave. So Laban makes an empty promise to him in verses 27 and 28 over in chapter 30. Um, Laban, you know, he, 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 he covered his evil motive by his plan by asking Jacob to choose the terms of this plan. He said, okay, I tell you what, I tell you what. We, we, we're both prosperous here and you got uh, your, your herds and flocks and I got mine too. And, and I tell you what, here, here's the deal. Here's the deal I'll make with you. You, you just kind of like pick the terms and I'll live with whatever you choose. Well, Jacob proposes an honest deal in verses 31 through 33. Jacob offers to work as Laban's shepherd if Laban would give him the rejects from the flocks and the herds. Interesting, you see the change in Jacob's life? In the past, he would ask for the best. Now he asks for the rejects. Just, just give me what's left over. Give me the spotted ones. Give me the striped ones. And the sheep were white and the goats were brown or black. Those were the favorite ones. Back then, if there was spots and stripes and this kind of thing, it was like they worth little or nothing. Well, Laban breaks his promise in verses 34 through 36. He said, yeah, I'll do that for you. And then he says to this man, hey, go, look, I'll tell you what, don't give him anything. Take all the spotted ones. Take all the striped ones. You take them for yourself as well as the good ones. Laban wanted to break Jacob. Well, God honors Jacob, verses 42 and 43. Hmm. The middle part of verse 42 says, so the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly, meaning Jacob, and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. God said, yeah, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you that I can prosper you even when people mess over you. And let me, let me, let me, let me just sidetrack and give some lessons from us from this ripoff. From the cheating, the taking of the, of, of the giving the wrong woman. And being ripped off. I, I, there, there, there are about four lessons I want to lay out with you. Number one is this. When God is for someone, you can't stop them. 
You, you can't stop them when God is for them. Um, be very careful of coming after another believer. Be very careful. Be very careful of motives of jealousy or envy or bully attitude or motives of power. I just want you to know something. Be, be careful because if God is for someone, you, you, you can't stop them. Jacob became a wealthy man unintentionally because God was for him. Secondly, what people take from us makes room for God to give us more. I said this a few weeks ago. So don't, don't ever feel like because you have been messed over, somebody's taken advantage of you, somebody's taken an opportunity from you, somebody's taken something out of your hand. I have learned through my life in ministry, I don't have to fight for anything. You don't have to fight for anything. What is taken from you? God can give you more. Number three, what we get by dishonest gain means that we've given up what's really valuable and hard to replace. And please, I would be less than genuine if I didn't say this. An audience this size, let's face it, we have some of us that struggle with tell them, telling the truth. We've got some of us who are deceptive, and maybe our, our, uh, the reason why we're deceptive is because of fear, an inordinate desire to be visibly successful. I don't know why. But I want to I warn you about this. I said this last week. I want to warn you about this. Whenever you wrangle your way, you just put 75% on the table, and you orchestrate and manipulate people, and you don't deal straight up with them, and you're not transparent about your motives, and you're not clear about your intentions, and you rip people off, and you get in this habit of lying. I want to tell you something. You've given up what's really valuable and hard to replace. If we cheat to get what we have, then we don't have very much. We paid far more than we should have. Far more. We live in a pragmatic culture. Every election cycle, people are making all these promises and uh, you don't know who's telling the truth. And it's terrible in our society how we have institutionalized this deception charade. And I, I, you know, I'm a pretty positive person. I don't mean to sound cynical, but anymore, I, I kind of like cut in half what these politicians tell me. And then I believe a third of that. And, you know, that's just indicative of everybody covering themselves and wanting to position themselves to get the right thing. Number four, deception and dishonesty are addictive and destructive. Lying is addictive, especially if you incrementally get a payoff and you get another payoff and you get another payoff and you get what you want and you get what... It, it's just, it's, it, 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 it's ultimately destructive, though. Eventually, dishonest people end up isolated. Parents, this is what's the reason why you have to, what you have to tell your kids. It's kind of like my dad said, I told you this before. My dad said to me, notice his choice of words. When I was a little guy, he said, boy, when you lie to me. He didn't say if you lie. He knew human nature. He said, when you lie to me, it better be the best lie you ever told. And I think parents, when we, when we catch our kids lying, we need to remind them that if that's not stopped, and if it becomes a pattern, you're going to end up isolated. Because eventually, it's like a person wearing a sign that says, don't get close, I can't be trusted. This is a very serious situation. And you end up by yourself. Nobody likes to be around manipulative, deceitful people. Well, Jacob has had enough. In chapter 31, verses 22 through 23, he is pursued. Jacob said, okay, I'm out of here. By the way, Jacob leaves for three reasons. One, obviously, he is sick and tired of Laban. Laban was a scan master. The lights came on, probably came on sooner than that. But he says, I got to get out of here. Number two, he left to establish... Uh, uh, his own home. He needed to be on his own. He had all these, by this time, he had all these kids. He had all this, uh, God had favored him and all this kind of thing. He says, it's time to hit the road. Time for me to find my own territory. This place ain't big enough for both of us, and I don't want to have to kill Laban. 
And then thirdly, he left ultimately because of the direct leading of the Lord. God was in him leaving at this point. What are you trying to say here? Let's stand back a little bit. As you look at chapter 31, beginning of verse 22, all the way down, you find that the number one, Laban lost. This again gets into the whole deception thing. The more he tried to manipulate, the more he tried to orchestrate, the more he tried to control, you know, he got a temporary payoff, but ultimately he lost. What did he lose? Consider, he lost uh, his pride. Began looking like a fool. I mean, how would you like it? You, you kind of like manipulate the herds and this kind of thing, think you're going to win, and the guy gets more prosperous. Every time you try to rein him in, God does more for him. So he loses his pride. Secondly, he loses cheap, productive labor. I'm gone. You don't have me anymore. But thirdly, he loses his family. I wonder if Laban thought, was it really worth it? I want you to read this, verse 28. Uh, (laughs) When he comes upon upon, uh, Jacob, chapter 31, verse 28, listen to what he says. He says, he says to Jacob, and why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you've done foolishly. You know, I, I gotta tell you. He, he presents himself as a hurt father. This is bogus. He didn't care anything about him leaving this guy. It was his pride. It's gone. But Jacob wins. Jacob wins. And it's amazing to me, and I don't have time to go through this, but isn't it amazing that God shows Jacob he could win without stealing his brother's birthright, without stealing the blessing? He could have won all along. He didn't have to do any of that. He shows him that even when people push you down, it doesn't stop me. Jacob's ladder, the angel's going back and forth. It doesn't stop me from working. It doesn't stop God. I want to tell you, I want to plead with you, stop empowering your circumstances. Stop saying stuff like, well, you know, God could use me more if I wasn't here. That's a lie. You don't have a situation that's beyond God's ability to redeem and to use. Granted, you may not like it, but this is a lesson to him. So he wins. He wins. Now, Jacob goes off on him. Look at verse, uh, I got to read this section to you. Now, Rachel did something that was not good. Rachel, when they left, stole the family idols, okay? And Jacob didn't know about this. So you can't throw him under the bus. And so Laban was a little bit ticked off because he wanted to get them idols back. All right, but he couldn't find them. But listen to this. Jacob finally faces the bully. Listen to what he says in verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, why... What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? See it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us. Then he says, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. Stop it. So he said to him, I want to say something to you here. Laban was a bully. And bullies typically are insecure, jealous, and desperate for attention. Bullies take advantage of the vulnerable and those they think are, who are weak. And there are all kinds of bullies. And I'm not just talking about middle school bullies or high school bullies. There are adult bullies too. People who are threatened, who use power manipulate people. There comes a time in which you have to stop running and turn around and push back. And I want to encourage you to do that. Sounds weird coming from a pastor. 
There's a time, there's a time in which you have to turn around and look people in the eye and say, I'm not taking that. You're never going to talk to me like that again. You're not going to treat me like that again. I'm not taking it. My dad taught me this when I was in the middle school. I graduated, uh, graduated. I skipped the sixth grade. I was in seventh grade. So here I am a year behind. And there was a kid by the name of Paul Taylor. And uh, that's his name. And I hope he's saved or he will listen to this now. Uh, a kid by the name of Paul Taylor, that, that he had been left behind. I don't mean the rapture either. And uh, he, Paul, so here you have it. He's like, so he's like two years older than me. You know, two years is a big deal in middle school, right? So here I am, and Paul Taylor was a bully squared. I mean, like, you know, I, up until that point, I was never really scared of people and stuff, but Paul got me. Well, I don't know how my dad found out about it. My mother must have told him or something. And my father said to me one day, he said, boy... If I hear that that Taylor boy puts his hands on you again and you don't do anything, you're going to have to fight me. That's awful, man. I mean, so the decision was made. I mean, beat down by Paul Taylor or beat down by Pop? No, I'll take Paul Taylor. So uh, Paul did something the next day in school. No, it wasn't the next day. It was like a couple of days after. He did something in school, and I won't tell you what it was. Pretty, pretty nasty, embarrassed me. And I stood up and declared what I was going to do to Paul after school. As soon as those words went out of my mouth, I'm saying, you're so dead. <laughs> I'm figuring out, okay, now that I'm going to die, who's going to get my baseball cards? Who's going to get my baseball glove? I don't want my sisters riding my bicycle. I'm figuring out my last will and testament. <laughs> you know, so we get outside and sure enough, I'm kind of like, okay, here we go. And you know, he walked away. Moved to Plainfield, New Jersey, at Hubbard Junior High School, right? From Newark, New Jersey, new kid, a couple of kids messing with me. You know, just kind of like the new kid. They want to try me out and this kind of thing. Kept harassing me, harassing me, and harassing me. And I remembered Paul Taylor. I, rem- I did. I'll never forget this. One of the kids, it was like we're in gym class. I was changing my clothes. And so one of the guys walked up to me, and I just got tired. This was going on for a couple of weeks. He said, uh, Loritz, I, I heard that you said you can beat up everybody in this school. Well, I didn't say that, you know. So I just said, no, nah, I can't beat them all, but I can take you. Let's get on. <laughs> and that was the end of it. Now, I don't give that advice to young people today. Folks are crazy out there, okay? I mean, it's a different, different deal. But the principle is the same. Stop backing down from people who threaten you. Sometimes you have to push back. You're not going to talk to me that way. You're not going to treat me that way. The final thing is this. He was protected. God stops the pursuer. In verse 24 of this same chapter, God comes to Laban and says, But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Watch it. In other words, God said, you know, your issue's not with Jacob, your issue's with me. And I will always win. Be careful. Reminds me of 2 Chronicles 20, 17, when uh, Jehoshaphat and Judah were scared to death by the Ammonites and the Moabites. And God said to them, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And then God provides for the faithful. Verse 42 says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob's words amounted to a warning given by God himself that stopped Laban in his tracks. It was as if God said, Laban... Don't try me. Don't try me. Did you, did you know that in the Bible, every time you oppress someone or you treat them unjustly, you are attacking God? Did you know that? Every time you do something wrong by another person, you are attacking God himself. He is the God of the afflicted and the oppressed. Let me wrap it up by saying this to you. Here's the takeaway. The big thing is that I want to say to all of us today, please, 
deal with what you need to deal with. Stop running from your sin. Stop running from the things that God is putting his finger on in your life. Deal with what you need to deal with. What do you mean by that? Three things. Number one, own the sin and repent. Own it. Stop, 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 stop making excuses for it. Own the sin and repent. That was the whole point of Jacob. Jacob, I'm parking you here. 20 years. You're going to own this, so help me you're going to own it. Own the sin and repent of it. Number two, take your medicine. Take your medicine. Sometimes it's just not a quick fix. Don't ask God to stop pruning you until he's finished pruning you. Take your medicine. And then thirdly, build a fence. What do you mean by that? Well, build a fence. Habits of holiness that keep you from sliding back into that mess. That's what I'm talking about. Talking about review the pain and the lessons that you've learned. Ask yourself, was that worth it? Live in community with others so they can help us. And then pursue consistent intimacy with God so we don't slide back. Let's stand together. you're here today and don't know Christ as your Savior, all you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I turn to you, and he will cleanse you and forgive you and make you his child. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the lessons you teach us. Oh God, we pray in the name of your Son that we will not despise the discipline of the Lord. We pray, God, that we will not run from what you want us to deal with. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we will open our hearts and our minds to letting the Spirit of God make us what God wants to make us so that we can be all that you want us to be and you will be glorified by every ounce, every inch of our existence. Dismiss us from this place, but may we walk close to your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings.